0: You are listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with Rob Reed and Josh Galicki, bringing together the love of nature and photography. Episode 2 The Future of Wildlife Photography. Well, welcome everybody to the second episode. Uh, of the Wildlife Photography Podcast, uh, with me, Rob Reed and uh, my co-host, Josh Galicki. Hi, Josh.
1: Hi, everyone. Hey, Rob. Good to see you again.
0: So what Josh and I are going to talk about today, as I think we alluded to in our introductory podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, then uh, then do uh, go back and have a a listen to the first episode that we recorded a few weeks ago. Uh, But what we're going to talk about today is the future of wildlife photography, and that's really where photography is going in terms of its style uh what how people are using social media uh you know the the growth of the industry you know over the last 15 years you know and how you know digital technology has transformed it so these are these are all the things that i, I thought we could we could start off with discussing and just just see where see where the see where the chat goes basically we'll see where it leads us
1: yeah i think rob when it comes to the future of wildlife photography we're in an environment now where we have so many more wildlife photographers than we have years ago you have folks who um participate in wildlife photography as a pastime as a hobby full-time professional retirees who are doing it more often so you have more and more people in the, field. the um, It's a lot more competitive than what it was. Folks are pushing the envelope artistically. You have social media driving a lot of change as well. More and more wildlife photographers, they want to be known and they want to stand out from the rest. So they're innovating. Other folks are following. And I think we're in a situation too, when you have less and less wildlife and you have more and more competitions out there, folks want to be recognized. There's also a lot more stress on the wildlife. So I think uh, moving forward, looking at where we are and into the future, I see trends changing. I see uh, many more focal lengths being introduced. You know, you can have an incredible wildlife shot at 24 millimeter just as you could at 600 millimeter. Whereas years ago, it was the longer focal length than the 600 millimeter. The more literal shots, we're more we're away from we're getting away from the literal as we move forward. And in addition to that, there's stronger expectations for wildlife photographers. If you do shoot literal, it needs to tell a story. Or it needs to demonstrate the plight of a particular animal, has a conservation purpose to it. So um, I think there's a lot more responsibility because there's more wildlife photographers. There's a greater responsibility as well in light of what's going on with our wildlife populations across the globe. So things are changing very quickly.
0: And and how many subjects are there? you know within what you have just said for us to sort of explore in future episodes as well it's not you know yeah. just the future of wildlife photography in terms of one or two elements there's so many sort of pieces of the puzzle here that i think we can we can explore And you know in fact what you were saying was b- sort of brought back um you know when you were talking about um the difference the different sort of mindsets of people that are going out and and uh, sort of getting involved with wildlife photography and basically their sort of, well, one, their expectations and, and and be what they want to get out of it. You know, they are very, very different for, for, for so many people. And it sort of reminded me of conversations that I had at bird fair a few weeks ago in the UK, when it, when it, because Wild Art had a stand at Bird firm I we uh, was selling the the Wild Art book and displaying some of my own work and some of uh, Victoria Hillman's actually as well. One of a one of the sort of co-judges in the in, in the competition, and um, I had so many people come up and talk to me um and pick up the wild art book and flick through it and say oh how fantastic all the images are and then look at some of my work and some of Victoria's and say well you know I I'm a photo," and I'd ask them if they were a photographer and they said oh yeah yeah but no- nothing anywhere near this standard I, I couldn't possibly you know even dream of uh, uh, of sort of producing work like this and I you know it's a, I, I I sort of you know talk to them a little bit further about it and 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 actually The outcome of a lot of those conversations was me saying to them, well, you know, do you enjoy wildlife photography? Yes. And do you do it for yourself? Yes. Well, why do you even want to sort of think about this sort of standard anyway? Not saying they couldn't do it, but if they're taking photographs that they enjoy and they're taking them for themselves and nobody else, then there is that set of photographers as well. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Photography is out there to be enjoyed, isn't it? You know, and that's exactly right. You know, not every image is going to be a competition winner and yeah you know why why would you want them to be you know it, it's d- you know if you, you're enjoying the image if you're enjoying the photography and you enjoy the images that you're producing then that's you know enough as one of, as my favorite song goes or one of my favorite songs goes nothing else matters mm.
1: Metallica, the black album. That
0: was Metallica, 90, the black in, album, yeah. What,
1: 91? Yeah. I, I, I... <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, probably. That's <laughs> a great album, by the way. That's a great album.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I totally agree with you, Rob. And I think, you know, we're in the social media age and there's a lot of peer pressure on folks. When they go onto social media, they see all these images and there's this pressure to produce an image that's as good or better. And frankly, people can get caught up in that. But at the end of the day, if you're shooting, you have to shoot for yourself. You should not shoot for someone else. And I think that that statement can be said about many aspects of our life, but it's especially true in wildlife photography as well.
0: Yeah, and and I, and the other thing I was saying to them is, I said, "Yeah, the thing is, you don't see my failures, <laughs> <laughs> of which there are many." <laughs> yes, yes,
1: uh, I'm the same way. Yeah, you don't see that on social media or what's.
0: No, and that's you know, how you learn. Exactly, something that you and I have really noticed you know uh p- particularly with being involved with wild art photographer of the year and that's the sort of transition away from the sort of more literal style of photography that i guess we were all introduced to when we first started um taking pictures of wildlife to the more artistic and that that is something that we've seen quite a lot of and and actually the competition encourages uh you know in in wild art photographer of the year uh, and it se- seems to be sort of particularly you know, the the Europeans that have, that have led that transition. Uh, But I've just been amazed by it and amazed by the images that have, that have been coming into that competition and the the images that I've been seeing on social media, the way the sort of trends are now starting to go.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, these, the, the trend from the literal image to the more artistic image, I think that's happened over the past 10 years and you're right. It's definitely started in Europe. I think maybe a direct correlation to that is there's, so many more wildlife photographers out in the field now than there were years ago. And, you know, competition breeds uh, innovation, if you will. I guess that's an economic way of putting it. But at the same time, the more people you have in the field, people get sick of seeing the same old image, whether it's a profile shot, animal in the center of the frame, a diagnostic shot, if you will. And there begins to be a drive in people looking at wildlife photographs and thinking, OK, everybody's taking the shot. How can I be different? Um, and you can see that evolution uh, not only uh, in photo contests that have been around, for, been around for many years, but you can see that evolution even in social media. I've been following it over the past few years. And I think that trend is definitely starting to pick up in North America as well. Um, you have more and more photographers looking at different ways to photograph wildlife. And I see it kind of evolving down two paths from my, from my standpoint. Um, it's looking to tell a story rather than just a diagnostic shot of the animal or looking to be more artistic, uh, looking to capture the animal in a different light, or maybe the animal isn't even uh, a significant piece of the composition. Maybe it's just a supporting role in the composition. So uh, many different many different trends going on right now. And it's frankly exciting uh, yeah. because it's there, so innovative.
0: There's so many sort of facets to, to actually what makes up a, an artistic image. I mean, we, when when we yeah. think of artistic, we perhaps sort of thinking, oh, well, maybe it's a bit of motion blur, or you know, there's some sort of you know nice backlighting going on with plenty of bokeh, or you know, sort of rim lighting, or whatever it might be. But actually, you know, there are so many different ways that you you can get more artistic, you know, with your photography. And we, you know, so we were talking about perhaps sort of give putting things in in their environment, giving them a bit more space, for example, mm-hmm. you know, th- those those sorts of things you know, more of a conservation and storytelling aspect to it, as you you touched on as well. You know, all of those, you know, I think I put into the sort of artistic bucket, if you like, rather than the sort of literal. And, And when, you know, when you listen to judges when they judge competitions, you know, you pick up on certain things that they are all generally looking for, and they're looking for images that have impact because they've not seen a particular approach with what might actually be a very, very common subject. I mean, I remember the first bird photographer of the year, for example, was one with a mute swan. I mean, you can't get more common than that, but it was just done in an artistic way, uh, which made it stand out. You know, there are, you know, they they all want to, they all want images that have a lot more depth. So they want images that they can go back to again and again and again, and they find something different every time they look at them. So they're a bit more complex in the way that they're, you know, the way that they're constructed. Uh, they want to. They want to 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 see it as as you were talking about. They want the image to tell a story, in whatever way that might be. It might be a bird in its habitat. It might be some sort of conservation-related issue, but they want it. They, you know, they want want a story. So it's. I guess it's. It is talking about images with with perhaps more depth, uh, and with a little bit more going on the sort of standard, close-up portrait stuff, that I think you know. Basically, we all started with. Because that's what we saw, and that's what we wanted to emulate in our own photography, and that's always, a, I think that and there's there's no shame in that. I think that's a really good sort of solid foundation, um, you know, for wildlife photography skills is to start with that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And diagnostic shots are suit certain purposes. I mean, they're great to spread awareness out for certain species or um, for folks if they need support for field guides and so forth. But You know, I think as a wildlife photographer um, who's evolved over the years and, you know, I consider myself, uh, you know, a lifelong student in wildlife photography. This is not something you master and that's it. You're constantly evolving and learning. I think one of the great things about being a photographer is, you know, prints and having crossover appeal. If I take a shot that I'm proud of, you know, my goal is to have that shot not only be respected by folks in the nature photography business, but also, Someone who doesn't even know much about wildlife or nature photography and they're looking for a print on their wall. Um, That's the difference, I think, between um, taking a more artistic approach to wildlife photography than taking a more literal approach. I will say, which has also been exciting, and I think this is obviously going to continue as well, since we're coming out of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, which started back in 2020, you had so many more photographers who could not travel and they started photographing in their backyards. Some of our fellow judges have talked about this, discovering species that they've overlooked for so many years, I myself included, and it's been exciting, you know, instead of getting on a plane or traveling or driving far distances to certain photography spots, I've been able to pick up a macro lens and shoot in my garden uh, Mm. in the evenings. I can come up with things that are just as creative, so I think I've always said, too, the best photography is local, and a lot more wildlife photographers have decided to shoot in their backyard and shoot those common subjects not only can they be creative but they get more and more attention now when it comes to these local common whether it's a backyard bird or whether it's a spider insect or a fox for instance Um, and i think it's great and it raises awareness even for these animals which have a very similar plight to even such as the Big Five in Africa and some of the more well, well-known. Perhaps population. even
0: worse. I mean, you know, the, the yeah. sort of Big Five get a lot of attention and some of these other yeah. species sort of get a little bit forgotten about. I mean, I'm a great advocate of, of shooting locally and, I, and, I, and most of my work, 99% of my work is done locally because, uh, well, you've seen the price of diesel recently. <laughs> but no, I it's, mean, it's, you know, we all know these even things worse are getting than america, more, way worse than america yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean but you know we all know these things are getting more expensive it's more expensive to travel it's more difficult to travel i mean you know it well the cost of living crisis that we're yeah. all suffering from and you know will continue for the next however long it's not that's not going away anytime soon so there's a lot to be said for shooting in you, you know, locally because the other advantage of it is that you get to know areas and places intimately and the wildlife that inhabits them. So you get to know the habits, you get to know where the light comes up and for you know, get to know you know, and you can take advantage of of really special conditions at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And I think that's that's really important. I mean, some of the discussions I've had, you know, with some of the judges when we've been doing you know some sort of some of these sort of live uh, YouTube discussions you know, centers around being able to take advantage of, of special conditions, which, you know, might only come around once every four or five years. Yeah. You know, and right. if you're able to take advantage of those, you know, you can create some absolutely stunning work that, you know, you'd never be able to recreate or, pe- or people actually couldn't go and copy because they've got to wait for those conditions to, you know, to, to reappear and they've got to know yeah. <laughs> where you've taken the image and they don't have the knowledge that you do. So I think, and, it's, and I don't it's know really about you, Rob.
1: I, I agree, and I don't know about you, Rob. But I'm more proud of images I get in my backyard or in my local area than I am when I go to, let's say, Africa or Alaska. There's more pride in it because it's a localized shot. And I have to say, when I'm shooting locally, as I think most photographers are, whether it's in their backyard or their local spot, there's less pressure. If I go in my backyard and I decide to photograph, if I don't get a shot, it's not a big deal. I go in and I go out the next day. And when I shoot without pressure, I find from my standpoint, I perform better. I'm thinking more clearly. I'm not as stressed. If I'm spending a lot of money to get on a plane or travel to Africa or some far and away place, and I have a couple of days to get certain shots, there's pressure there. You're hoping, will the weather cooperate? Oh, no, this just happened. I missed it. Will it happen again? All of these things are in your mind. If you're shooting locally, you don't have to worry about that pressure. At least for me as a yeah. photographer, I know a lot of others feel that way. And I produce better material that um, when I, in situations where I know the terrain, I know the animal behavior, I know what to expect. And I have the time to put myself where the lighting conditions are more optimal. Um, and it's a, it sets yourself up for success. I always say the best shooting is local and the most yeah. enjoyable from my standpoint.
0: And, and don't forget, you're local is somebody else's, you know, exotic. Yes, that's right. You know, (laughs) I mean, the sort of stuff that I I have
1: European starlings I can give back to you. (laughs) There's a lot more starlings over here.
0: (laughs) Well, I tell you what, I'll swap them for the gray squirrels. How about that?
1: Oh, that sounds good. Well, I've got plenty of them, but I could take a few more maybe. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's not. Yeah, European starlings, not great story, is it?
1: No, it's, it's interesting to see that, especially seeing the numbers over here in the States and what's going on over in the UK.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we've got numbers dropping here and you've got exponential growth <laughs> going on over there. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's quite bizarre. But I mean, these are... Well, I mean, if we're talking about the future of wildlife photography, yeah. you know, there there is the consideration of, of actually what is happening, you know, with the species that we all love to photograph. I mean... Yeah we all know that things are changing rapidly and generally for the worse you know and i think we've got you know we've got a job as uh, or responsibility as wildlife photographers to help raise awareness uh, in terms of you know the conservation of a lot of these things and actually by taking you know amazing images that that stand out and taking them in different ways you know i think can help that you know photography plays a really important role in in conservation because it it highlights species that people perhaps aren't weren't previously aware of you know and an engaging yeah. image can do well it can do so much because it's people won't sit and read a thousand words about you know an orangutan who's having its habitat destroyed for the sake of Agricultural growth, let's say, but when they see an image of an orangutan hanging off of a you know a, you know of, of a machine that's cutting down its its home, then that really does hit home. That resonates with people, and all of a sudden they yeah. they think, "Hang on a minute, what's going on here?" yeah And I think you know it's we have very we have a really, yeah it is very powerful so we we have a responsibility and hats off actually to some of those photographers that are coming up with some of those amazing images do you remember do you remember that image of the uh, the brown bear by Amit Eschel last year in wild art yeah. photographer of the year yeah. and the story that told about you know that environment which was under threat from a mining company who were going to destroy thousands of acres of pristine alaskan habitat
1: Yeah, I think that was pebble mine, if I'm not mistaken, um, which is still very controversial. Um, And yeah, that's exactly right. I think if um, you can bring that imagery to the forefront and people can identify emotionally with the animals and what's going on, that's a huge, huge benefit, not only to photography, but also for the plight of the animal itself. And it can happen at local levels. I mean, in the Northeast, I'll take photographs of Warblers, New World Warblers, Blackburnian warbler and all these, you know, pretty colored songbirds that migrate. They have incredible migration patterns. They come from Ecuador, South America, Central America, and they come to the U.S. and northern Canada. uh, And these are in individual folks' backyard and they have no idea. I'll show them pictures like, oh, my God, that's incredibly beautiful. What is that? I'm like, well, I took it right next to your backyard. Oh, they have no idea these animals even exist. So there's such basic forms of awareness that we can do, even outside of telling a story. I mean, even just taking an image of an animal in some cases can have a huge impact. So there's so many wildlife photographers out there today. There's so many people in the field that have the means that I think it's part of the, I would I dare say it's part of the responsibility of the wildlife photography community to start to bring about um, this recognition and to help drive this change because it's needed. And also I would say, ethics are needed as well. I mean, there's less and less wildlife, there's more photographers, there's more people in the field, and we need to be mindful of how we shoot. One of the first things I think it's a foundational principle of it is you need to be respectful of your subject, and it should be about the subject and not about you. If you're going in specifically for selfish reasons, and you don't care what you do in the field, you just need to get that shot. That's not the most important thing that's the least important thing. And that's something I think wildlife photographers should not put to the precedent. It should be about the subject. You need to love the subject more than um, your ability or your desire to get the shot and yeah. things will happen. Things will come to you. And you know, one thing I will say with that marks great wildlife photographer, great wildlife photographs versus average wildlife photographs. When you're in the field, So many photographers, because they have limited time or they're trying to get that shot and they have these higher expectations or their own expectations, they're trying to force the moment. Um, You've probably seen this many times, Rob. You know, people go in the field and they just want that moment to happen, although they'll, they'll do what they can. Well, if the moment doesn't happen, maybe you get up and you walk a little too close or you flush the animal or you invade the animal space, or you try to create conditions to bring the animal in, whether whether it's through baiting and all these other things, Um, the best shots are unforced. um, And, you know, sitting there and being patient, eventually things will happen. And you can tell the difference between something that's forced or artificial and something that's natural
0: yeah absolutely because the thing is the subject needs to look relaxed i mean if it's looking yeah. startled or or uh, you know stressed that comes across in the image and it's it's a lot less engaging for the viewer because that yeah. stress comes across in in the image
1: there's actually a trend that i've seen through social media and commentary and so forth because you know we all see many images a day and there's a rolling commentary underneath each image there seems to be a thought process that's been going on it's pervading the wildlife Photography community, to my, from my standpoint, is that if you have an incredible shot, that's also ethical, that's not possible. They seem to be mutual. People think they're mutually exclusive. Oh, that's that's a great shot. That's too good to be true. What did you do? Did you have the speaker blasting? Did you have the food there? Well, no. It is possible to come up with a really great wildlife image, and have it be ethical at the same time. Uh, so that's that's there's a lot of dialogue around that, and it, concerns me a little bit because if somebody takes a great image it's not always too good to be true it could just be a great image through field craft through planning and some of these images take months sometimes years to put together so i think people need to have an open mind on that
0: yeah i mean i think people are far too quick sometimes to sort of jump to the wrong conclusions yes you know and and not give credit where it's due whereas i i kind of take the opposite view is that you know i i'll always appreciate something i'll always look for signs of of issues but i'll always give the benefit of the doubt because i think that's that's my personality anyway and i think that's a that's that's a good way to be that's yeah, a good way. i to agree be. with
1: you rob and i think it's incumbent upon you know wildlife photographers to give the benefit of the doubt until you know obviously there could be situations where it could be proved otherwise but you have to trust the photographer i mean everyone It's your word. Right. And that's that's there's a trust level there. But um, I do think it's possible to have an incredibly great photo that's artistic, that's well planned out, well thought of and beautiful, but also be ethical at the same time. They're not ethics and great wildlife photography are not mutually exclusive.
0: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. So I guess the, the other thing about, you know, when we talk about the future of wildlife photography, I mean, look how technology has moved on in the last 15 years i mean look where we were where we were 15 years ago and when i first picked up let's say the the canon 5d you remember the original 5d the 12 megapixel i may, you know game changer of a camera which it was at the time and now yeah. you kind of laugh at that technology but you can't you can't you've got to remember that wasn't that long ago But look where we are now. We're from 12 megapixels to, if you haven't got 45 megapixels, you're nobody, um, to sort of 20, 30 frames a second. Uh,
1: Yeah, Rob, I totally agree. I think in the early 2000s, we had a huge revolution from film to digital. Now, just recently, over the past few years, from the DSLR to mirrorless. Um, It's a huge leap in technology. And there's so much going on. And I can say for myself in 2019, I was shooting a 5D Mark IV. I was shooting seven frames a second and I had no animal AI or any type of intelligent autofocus on my camera. Now I have animal AI where it locks onto the animal. I can compose in frame in camera. I'm shooting at 45 megapixel if I'd like, or you know, I'm shooting at 20 frames a second or sometimes 30 frames a second. I have the Canon R3. So um, you just look at the past couple of years and the leaps have been enormous. Um, they, I think I would argue that they've been incremental prior to the mirrorless revolution. Each year you'd go from, you know, seven frames, eight frames, maybe 10, 12 frames a, uh, a second. Uh, I know like with the 1DX series or the D, the D series with Nikon, um, but you have... Other things happening too. Olympus or now OMD with Pro Capture. The Nikon Z9 has Pro Capture, where you're actually able to have the camera take photos of be- perhaps before the bird launches or some sort of action, so you don't miss it. So there's so many things out there now that enable you to get uh, better imagery, and it's much more accessible, I would argue, to the consumer. Uh, I'm a Canon shooter. You can get a 600, 800 millimeter, the F11 series for a very reasonable price. And most of the camera bodies now with the sensor technology, you can shoot in low light situations and push your ISO. Um, I remember just a few years ago as well, Rob, I was shooting with a a 7D. I wouldn't want to push my ISO above 800. Now in certain cameras, 6400, 8000, 10,000, 12,000, I I don't even blink. Um, So there's so many more open opportunities now for uh, wildlife photographers. And it's an, it's an exciting time. I personally hope from a gear standpoint, whether it's OMD, Nikon, Canon, Sony, um, Fuji, and some of the other camera, that they all stick around and they all compete because um, it's, a, it's a very exciting time uh, when it comes to gear. And again, not that gear means everything. It's a piece of it because at the end of the day, I'd much rather have uh, a photographer that has a trained eye in composition that has an artistic eye, uh, someone who's able to take advantage of situations and formulate shots in their mind and understand all the different artistic pieces of wildlife photography. That's much more important than gear. But um, having the gear that we have now, it opens up some additional doors that people just didn't have years ago. And it's exciting.
0: You think how some of those uh, original Film pioneers and what they would actually think of digital technology and the stuff that we have available to us now—were <laughs> yeah. they still here? Uh, I mean, it would yep. just blow their minds. I mean, you know, when when you remember that f- you know film before, and you maybe get eight hundred ISO film, and that's kind of pushing it. And now, what you animal. can do <laughs> with shutter speeds and you know in low light situations, yeah, you know, it's it's you know, well, it's an autofocus it's just light years ahead and and the sort of things that that average photographers can now take and i use that yeah. term it's not a derogatory term uh you know when I, when I, when i use it in this instance but you know or the le- let's call them less experienced photographers can now take with some of the gear that's available that that the pros could only dream of you know, or, you know, yeah. just only a few years ago. It's just, as you say, it's, you know, the journey is incredible. And I think this sort of mirrorless, as you say, is probably as significant as the move from film to digital in the first place, because what yeah. you can do now with mirrorless, which I still haven't switched to, I have to say, <laughs> to be honest, um, it, it's just, it's just amazing.
1: And, and well, to that point, as you were just saying, Rob, you haven't made that switch yet. I think you know if you want to put together an artistic composition or a great composition and get a great wildlife or a nature photograph, you can still do that with gear that's not only five years old, ten years, twenty years old, even longer than that. So, the big game changer, I think, when it comes to some of the gear innovation over the past couple of years, that I would say would be the animal AI to compose a photo in compose a photo in camera. Um, you can not have to worry about moving your focus points around and getting them perfectly where you want the bird in frame or the animal or whatever you're photographing. That happens automatically and you can position that. So less cropping, uh, low light imagery, um, sensors that can withstand higher ISOs and action. If you have an action sequence, if you're the cheetah chase or an eagle catching a fish or some sort of dynamic moment, if you're able to capture 20 frames a second, 30 frames a second, um, some of these, uh, I think, I think it's a Z9, um, where you turn it to JPEG, you can get over 100 frames a second. So 120. As as the ability, <laughs> 120, it's crazy. 120.
0: Um, it,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's that ability where you can capture that, that perfect frame in a dynamic sequence. So um, you do have some advantages with gear. But when it comes to you know creating a very pleasing artistic image you know i i don't think gear matters Um, it's in certain situations i think it's improved um,
0: it's it's the it's the it's the eye and the skill of the photographer which you sometimes well there's no you know there's no substitute for that however good your gear is yeah however good your gear is let's talk about focal length on lenses for a bit because you know there's there's a sort of it seems to me to be a bit of a trend sort of a moving away from this sort of long 600 millimeter lens with a 1.4 or two times converter attached to it to you know perhaps sort of 70 to 200 or something even a bit wider to give things a bit more space
1: yeah yeah absolutely I think that trend has changed a lot and I started to really recognize it in some of the photography competitions Rob you were Uh, when you were involved in bird photographer of the year, my favorite category at the time was birds in the environment.
0: Yeah, mine too. Uh,
1: And it was an incredible category. and It was the most artistic from my standpoint, uh, in the sense that you're able to capture a bird or whether it's an animal or whatever your subject is, and you're able to incorporate the environment or incorporate minimalism and make a frame, not just about the animal, not just a diagnostic shot about the animal, but incorporating the space Uh, Letting the view, reading or having a viewer um, navigate through a photograph, it's almost like a landscape shot. And there's many more variables and dynamics in there. And you're you're only able to do that with shorter focal lengths, whether it's a 70 to 200 or maybe even wider angle shots. Um, Or even camera traps where you can be shooting at, you know, 15 millimeter or even wider in some cases. So there's many more opportunities, I think. And there's many more variables when it comes to artistic photography and showing animals in different lights at uh, shorter focal lengths rather than longer focal lengths. I still think, you know, when it comes to a 600, 800 or putting teleconverters on, I still like to use them, but more from a detail standpoint. So if I want to maybe have a part of the bill or an eye of, for instance, a Northern gannet. Yeah. Or maybe I want to get some detail or a very tight shot of a lion. I like those for details, but not for capturing just a boring portrait of, of an animal that's centered in the frame. That's been done, and I understand that, and I respect that, but um, it's not as exciting as what it would have been 20 years ago, for instance. People have moved on for that for the most part.
0: Yeah, and, and here's the thing. You know, every single judge in Wild Art, uh, Photographer of the Year, agrees that perhaps the most difficult image to take is that image of you know the subject in its environment and to do it well because there are so many elements that need to be composed correctly well i'll say correctly i mean i don't think there's any right or wrong in photography but in a pleasing way shall we say in a way that that sort of makes sense and compositionally comes together it's it's that is the most difficult thing to do because you not only have to think about the subject and where it's placed, you have to think about every other element of the frame as well. when' you're, when you're taking a close-up portrait of something, yeah okay, you know we all think about you know perhaps minimalist backgrounds we all think about you know having nothing in the foreground to distract, distract the viewer, but you know lighting perhaps. but beyond that, you know you're filling the frame with the subject whereas yeah. you know if you're going slightly wider, then there are so many other elements that you need to consider, and they all need to be balanced. Yeah, you know, if in in a way that the, makes the image work. Yeah,
1: I, I totally agree. If you're filling the frame with a subject, or you're just putting the the subject in, you know, the lower third or upper third or what have you, um, that does not involve more um, artistic pieces of composition, such as leading lines, natural framing, curves diagonals, all of these different things, different forms, um, utilizing different forms of lighting and light sources and so forth. So there's there's many more complexities you can have when you have an animal in the environment or, you know, something that's got just a wider angle and a shorter focal length. And that's absolutely the dominant trend. I mean, look at wild art. I mean, look at look at some of the images that have won and look at some of the images that are dominant. It's not the 600 millimeter with a 1.4. Certainly you can have an image that's successful um, with that, but it's folks are going away from that because that's been the dominant trend for so many years. People are looking for different ways. And I think it's healthy and I think it's great.
0: Yeah, but well, you said something earlier. You mentioned it um, earlier, was uh, you know about sort of borrowing things from landscape photography, you know, and, and borrowing those skills. And I, I think that's a really good point. I think it was it was it was Gail uh, Bisson that said to me that she um, actually looks at a lot of other genres of photography to get ideas for wildlife photography to sort of say, oh, I, I like that approach. It might be lighting, it might be composition, it might be, I, I, you know, any any of those things, but. You know, oh, I like that approach. It's borrowing things from other genres of photography, I think, is, you know, is perhaps a, you know another thing to think about. You know, don't just look at wildlife photography. I mean, I, I just I love photography. I just I love all forms of photography. And I look at other things, you know, like street photography, landscape photography, portrait photography, even. You can learn lots of things about composition and lighting from all of those uh, those genres that you can actually use for, for wildlife as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. Most of my inspiration when it comes to wildlife photography, it's been through books. I order books. uh, Wildlife Photographer of the Year has the Master's Edition. I think there's two volumes there and you have Art Wolf, Jim Brandenburg, um, so many uh, incredible uh, photographers over the years. And that you could study their composition. They talk about different aspects to composition. Uh, Vincent Monier is one, for instance. Um, There's a few others as well. But anyhow, these types of books, Anoop Shah is a good example. When it comes to camera trapping and remote setups but there's so many of these great photographers over the years and there's so much material out there that talk about different approaches and like those things inspire me more than social media so many people unfortunately i think are driven by instagram and social media where you have this small little box and normally the way to get likes and to get engagement in instagram well beyond the whole TikTok and the reels movement right now but even before that we're tight um, Close-up shots and that's great, and it may work on Instagram. And there's certain you know influencers and people who can create trends on there, but that doesn't necessarily transform into art when it comes to wildlife and nature photography. I think there's so many more inspirations out there,
0: and there's certainly incredible
1: photographers on Instagram. And that's a way for photographers to get their work known and to reach out and and find other photographers in the community. I think it's invaluable. But there's so many other um, there's so many other avenues and ways to explore the craft and be inspired and study these things outside of just social media.
0: Yeah. But I think, you know, people do put a great importance on social media and their sort of social media presence because, you know, to get noticed on social media is actually quite difficult now with so much content out there, you know, you've really got to, to, to be different. And I know, you know, you, in particular, you take a you know a, a sort of very considered view as to what you actually share on your social media platforms, don't you?
1: Yeah, I think as a photographer in any um, type of photography, whether it's wildlife or architecture or what have you, there's always that balance, Rob, between do I put consistent content and try to increase my engagement or do I put very decisive and deliberate content that you feel is a higher quality than just average work? and not have as much engagement or not post as much. So that's always a daily struggle. And I have to say with the current environment of social media, Instagram in specific, it's more now about these short video clips uh, where you'll see the collage and it'll say, you know, this is a work of, and you see 30 photos go by in a blink of a second. It's like, well, that to me is not photography. (laughs) If you barely see the image for a split second and it goes through this quick collage of images, you're not really appreciating it you're not digesting it you're not you're not getting the meaning of it um it's a different form of medium that isn't really the classic uh it's it's not in line with what photography is meant to be um from my standpoint so it's very difficult
0: and and do you feel i mean i i certainly feel this that i think there are a lot of people out there and you know people will do what they want to do for the reasons that they you know (laughs) that they do it that's that's fine you know we're we're all individuals we all do things differently but I've taken the view just recently that actually I don't care anymore what people Mm. think about my images I just post stuff that I like to take and if people like it that's great if they don't I don't really care anymore I've long since given up trying to chase followers on Instagram because ultimately what benefit? is that actually and
1: what i think is important with that rob is as you were saying you have to shoot for yourself you have to do it and you have to love what you do you should not shoot for other people you should not shoot for likes on instagram from my standpoint well the likes come and they're great and people you have a platform for people to recognize your work i think that's very healthy but at the same time you shouldn't let it consume you because you need to go out you need to be creative and shoot for yourself and let the chips fall where they may when it comes to posting and what people do as far as their reactions go. Um, I, I do find on social media, the folks who are uh, very popular on social media, they have a personality. They've also not only share their photography, but they establish a personality around the photography. And that seems to get a lot of interest and a lot of likes, uh, at least in the Instagram community. And this has probably come over from TikTok um certainly instagram is following those trends so i again i think there's pluses and minuses to that from my standpoint it should always be about your work it should be about the photographs you're creating but um we're kind of in a new age and i can understand some of these things and the reason why people want to do it uh it makes it entertaining for sure um i've been holding out on doing reels and doing certain clips just because uh i don't know maybe i'm too old-fashioned but um I just don't necessarily see the point in how it would benefit me, but um, that's certainly an avenue for people is building up a personality, uh, putting reels together, putting different videos together and having a specific brand, not just for the photography that's being taken, but for you as a persona. Um, Years ago, you would never be able to do that. Now that's an option for people and some take advantage of it. And I think it's benefited some for sure
0: and these platforms move on don't they i mean you know instagram is a great example of this we were just talking about you know the uh, the importance of stories and reels you know and and, yeah. the, and it's going a lot more for the, the the video content as opposed to the stills which is where it started and for me that's that's what i loved about it was people yeah. sharing their stills photography but now it seems that there is this competition with tiktok going on uh, and certainly in my own feed on Instagram, I have to scroll past 30 videos before I get to a still now. So yeah. you know that that's the content that they're pushing. So these platforms change all the time. And and I, I'm with you. I mean, here we are talking about being old fashioned on Instagram, <laughs> something that's only <laughs> been around for the last few years. Uh, but it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, these things do move so quickly. So what's what's yeah. flavor of the month? you know, today, next month, it could be something different. So your whole account, you know, could not be destroyed, but it, it could, the, you know, perhaps the emphasis of your account could, could move on, you know, and, and be left behind if you don't yeah. then embrace the content that they're pushing. And I've certainly seen that with Instagram, with uh, stills photography versus a lot of the sort of short videos that they're, they're, they're now pushing, because that seems to be where that platform is going, which I think is a shame.
1: I totally agree with you. And, you know, a lot of the video material that's in there, it's great. I mean, you could tell there's some of it's very artistic and there's a lot of work that goes into it. But um I think it's for a certain audience and some people think it's more entertaining. But I do hope in the future there is a new platform for wildlife photography. And maybe there will be another, whether it's an application or a website or something. Maybe we can go back to Maybe we all go back to Flickr. Who knows? <laughs> and, well, uh, who nice. But
0: well, well, maybe if somebody wants to invest a, you know, a couple of million bucks or something in uh, in a platform, Wild Art could do it. How about that? Yeah, the Wild let's Art do social it. <laughs> media platform—that'd be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I've often you, and- I've often thought of it, but yeah, I said you, you you certainly need people with expertise and with a bit of money to sort that out. So. <laughs>
1: and and having you know a platform that's outside of a phone app would be great. I mean, the whole point of it. I love enjoying uh, photographs on a much larger scale. And some of the images we were just talking about that are more artistic, the shorter focal length, you want to bring them up on your monitor. You really don't want to look at those on the phone. If I have a yeah. you know uh, an animal in a landscape or, you know, some sort of image that's meant to be viewed in a larger scale, it's very difficult to appreciate that in Instagram. You could to a certain extent, but it's better to be viewed on yeah. a large screen or in print, frankly.
0: Absolutely. But we live our lives on our phones, don't we? This is true. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> How often so it's do going you walk down back the- to that. Well, how often do you walk down the street and you walk, you you look at the people that are walking on the pavement and they're all, they're all heads down, you know, scrolling with their thumb on their phones. Yeah. And this, this is the world we we live in, I guess. I'm sounding like a... And that's not changing.
1: no No doubt. That's not changing.
0: Not changing anytime soon. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. We certainly covered quite a few topics there when we were sort of talking about the future of wildlife photography. So, uh, Josh, thanks as always for your time. Um, and thank you to everybody uh, who's listened to this episode. I hope that uh, it's been enjoyable and you've got something out of it. Uh, not sure what we're going to do for, for episode three. Uh, we'll have a think about that and uh, and, and get that together shortly. But uh, I said, thanks, everybody, for, for listening. And uh, we'll see you all again next time. Thank you all. You have been listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast. If you have enjoyed the content, then please help us to spread the word by sharing a link on your social media platforms, giving us a like and leaving us a comment. See you all again next time.